friends, and welcome to the podcast. This episode is sponsored by DreamDrive.life. Explore Japan in comfort and style in a rental customized camper van. Discount code later in the podcast. Hello, everyone. This episode, I speak with author Joseph Del Mastro, the author of Cultured Gaijin, a Japan memoir of Bushido beginnings. It's a unique book in that it takes place in Tokyo during a four-year span in the late 1970s. However, it's much more than just a memoir. It's also a travelogue, a culture, and language reference guide. And it's also a love story in more ways than one. You will hear all about the motivation behind writing his first novel, what made the details so authentic, the many colorful characters who changed his life forever, and why there may be a second book or even a series in the works, but focused on the 1980s and 1990s. Finally, Joseph offers free copies of his book to the first five listeners who contact him after listening to this episode. Contact details are at the end of the podcast and also in the show notes. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with the Cultured Gaijin, Joseph Del Mastro. There was a lot of drama in that chapter. Yeah. Your whole journey through Japan, it was going to be ruined. Everything that you'd built up to that moment was going to disappear in the blink of an eye. Because at that point, you're torn between loyalty to your captain and the love for Yoko. You have your duty as a serviceman, but then you have your feelings as a human being. And the captain bails you out at the last minute. Joseph Del Mastro, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here with you. Oh, the book. Oh, thank you for giving it to me, by the way. Appreciate it. Did I sign that for you? No. I will later then. You got it. If I become famous someday, it might be worth something. I don't know. Go on, <laughs> go on eBay or something. Okay, James Mishner. <laughs> Speaking of Mishner, this book reminded me of his 54, 1954 novel, Sayonara. Did you ever read it? No, I can't say I did. Well, it was also made into a movie with Marlon Brando in 1957 yes. called Sayonara. Yeah, I've heard about that movie. Yeah, Your book reminded me of Sayonara. I read it many, many years ago. It's funny you say that. My sister mentioned that movie. Wasn't there a movie with Marlon Brando and he falls in love with this Japanese girl? And He was in the military just like yeah. you. It was forbidden. I mean, this is right after World War II, so it was even more verboten than it was in yeah. 1977, 1978. Well, anyway, Joe, thank you for giving me your book, Cultured Gaijin. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. It's a real page-turner. And let me ask you, as a first-time author, why did you write this book? A lot of people ask that, and the thing is, is I never, ever thought about being an author. I never thought about writing a book. What ended up happening is, a a couple years ago, I was on YouTube just surfing around, and I came across a video of Yamashita Tatsuro. In the 80s, it was popular. In 1980, he put out an album called Right on Time. Yamashita Tatsuro, he's a famous Japanese singer. He's most famous in Japan, I believe, that's how I know him, for singing the Wham! song 
Last Christmas. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and it's played every year in every establishment at Christmas time. That, that's right. The song that I was came across was a, a song called Someday, Itsuka in Japanese. I came across it, and the guy that put it up, the first thing he said after he put up this video was, Japan must have been the pinnacle of human existence in the 1980s. So I just put a comment and he says, it was. I lived there for 20 years. And I lived there during the 80s. So this started a whole thread of people coming in and commenting. And saying, oh, you were really there. That, you know. So what ended up happening is I started writing stories. Give them a story about what happened then in the 80s. And many stories I'd write and they'd all be... Where was this? Was this a blog? Was this a chat board? It was on YouTube. So, uh, sorry, I was commenting on this, this song by... Yamashita Tatsuro But you were writing stories in the comments section? Yes. Oh my gosh. Pretty elaborate. In fact, one of the stories I wrote was the first chapter of Culture Gaijin, the present book. Then what happened, people really got into it, and they said, you should write a book. Wow. For a whole year, this, this went on. Is this thread still there? It got taken down because of copyright infringement. I do have copies of it. I backed up copies before that happened, thankfully, because all my stories were there. The last comment I saw was in September of 2021. You know, the next month I thought, okay, I'm going to take a crack at this. So I started writing. I found after outlining, making an outline of the stories that I had presented, which there were something like 14, 15 stories, I realized I had to start from the beginning, which was the first day when I arrived 4th of July, 1977. That's right. I left the U.S. July 4th, Independence Day, ironically, which then I never went back after all these years. In a way, it was your independence from the United States. <laughs> it was. Little did I know at that time. Right. So I wrote the first chapter based on that story. I start looking at my, my outline, and it jumps into the 80s really quickly. There was this filler part from 1977 up to like 1981, 82. All these things happened to me, which created the foundation of what I experienced in the 1980s. Oh, geez. I never thought about having a memoir about myself. Some of these stories I told were a lot of culturally based. Well, that's what's unique about your book. It only covers a span of four or five years. As a memoir, right. as for somebody who's spent how many total years in Japan? 20. 20. For Over the past the years. 45 years, you've been back and forth. That's right. right? Yeah, yeah. So only taking a snippet of four or five years is, is, is pretty unique for a memoir. There's obviously a reason for that. You needed to create the foundation for everything that transpired in the 80s. Well, let's talk about the first chapter. And this is what really struck me right off the bat. I mean, the first page jet-lagged and experiencing your first foreign country ever, you climbed Mount Fuji on your very first day in Japan. This, as you write, had a profound impact on you and you fell in love with Japan and transformed you into a novice Bushido warrior, as you write, all within a day of arriving in Japan. Was this a hindsight realization or something you generally felt at that time? It wasn't as if it transformed me overnight, but what it did is it put me in a mindset. I started learning Japanese and absorbing. I was reading Jap uh, books about Japanese culture, and 
and then I was into anything Japanese. I, I ended up getting into a relationship with a very traditional girl learning koto, Japanese harp. It just put me on a path yeah. of following Japanese culture and tradition and, and, everything, and everything else. Andrew, let's put it this way. If I would have arrived and I hadn't climbed Mount Fuji, I doubt that things would have turned out the way they did. So Really? Definitely. It had such an impact. I mean, besides that, I was so jet-lagged. I mean, I was basically hallucinating right. at the top. And then I stayed all night the first night. Then I get up the next day and see, you know, the Hinomaru, you know, the rising sun come up from Mount Fuji. It, I have to say it was a bit mind-blowing. Yeah. You know? A lot of people say it's a, a major power spot and it changes their life. Well, it, it definitely changed mine, that's for sure. <laughs> Obviously. Something that had such a huge impact on your life, you never climbed Mount Fuji again after that. Why not? I wasn't a mountain climber. You know, I've never been a mountain climber. I, I, don't, I don't climb mountains. So, yeah, but I mean, climbing Mount Fuji is not like rappelling and... Uh, but you're transversing back and forth, and not only that, there's really, in a sense, no set pathway, at least in 77. In fact, when, when we got there, I didn't see anybody. We got to the fifth station to start the climb, yeah. and there were very, very, very few people. And then when we got near the top, there were only eight, ten Japanese. And then there were the five of us, but that was about it. But with this profound impact that climbing Mount Fuji the first time had on you, you never thought about for spiritual, mental reasons, you never thought about going back? I didn't, because I'm not a mountain climber. This guy, you know, he was persuasive enough. I mean, I really didn't want to climb the mountain at all. At all. (laughs) But I did. I did. So, I mean, I just kind of went with the flow. Yeah. You didn't know it yet, but you were learning the first thing about giddy. In Japanese, <laughs> the, the concept of obligation because he's your sponsor, sponsor. Yeah. and he, you just arrived and he's making this suggestion that seemed crazy to you, but you thought maybe you were indebted to him or you were going to become indebted to him. Mm. And so the giddy, the obligation, which is so prevalent in Japanese society, was already kicking in. <laughs> No, I mean, looking back, nothing better could have happened to me as far as introducing me to the, the country, the culture, and a bit of the, even a bit of the language, because I got exposed the first day, you know, the Irishai. Right. I mean, can you imagine, like, in 30, 40 hours, you go from living, you know, being in central Illinois with your family on top of Mount Fuji, the highest mountain in Japan. It's like, it's crazy. It right. really is. That's got to be a huge cultural shock I would yeah. imagine we got to remember too there's a psychological thing here too I'm, I arrive in Japan and in a sense I'm cl- completely dependent on these people particularly Mike I'm dependent on him I mean I owe him a lot for then what happened for, to me the, the next 20 years seriously yeah. well your book is dedicated to him isn't it yeah yeah it is I, I had to you know, Andrew, sometimes in life you just got to let things flow, you know, and that's kind of how I've been, uh, particularly yeah. in j- my time in Japan. Why did you title your book Cultured Gaijin? 
actually the book is more about Japanese culture than it is, it is about me. By the time I was out of the service in, in the beginning of 1980, my life from that time, I realized all I had learned in those four years was very Japan culturally based. By the time I got out of the service, I really wasn't, I didn't feel I was an American. I, I changed a lot and um, I became what the book says. I, be, I thought I was, well, I feel I was cultured and it helped me go from my time in the service to live here permanently. I like how you explained the title, Cultured Gaijin, in that you said it's not so much a memoir as it is an introduction to Japanese culture. You get into so many unique Japanese words. Your book is literally a cultural dictionary with many great examples which illustrate each word. Words like omoyari, giri, endyo, gaman, honne and tatemae, and amae. On page 65, you write, Amae is the guiding credo at the heart of Japan's modern culture and traditions. It binds individuals, institutions, companies, even the government in an incessant entanglement of interdependence. Joe, you do a great job of explaining these untranslatable Japanese words into easy to understand English. That in itself is a real talent. Do you mind explaining the concept of amae a little more? This is one of those cultural concepts which is still very much present in Japanese society, but not many people dive into this word and instead choose to talk about buzzwords like omotenashi and ikigai. <laughs> there were two books that I can't remember who gave me, but they gave them to me, I think, in 1980, 1981. One book is a, a book called The Anatomy of Dependence. Takakodoi. Yeah. That book and the other book is Japanese Society by Chie Nakane. Those are just standard books that yeah. every foreigner should read. A lot of those concepts, particularly Doi's book, when he talks about Amai, Enryo, Tanin, and these, the, all these terms that how Japanese society is structured. Amai goes back to, in a sense, as a country, as an island that has no resources. This is where you get a whole system of a hierarchy where people have to be dependent on others, particularly above them, to survive. You're right. It is about hierarchy and interdependence. Yes. Not, not dependence in a negative way. In Japan, everybody is part of a group. That's right, yes. And the largest group of them all being Japanese. Yes. But then you have all of these smaller groups, such as the child is dependent upon the mother, the mother is dependent upon the husband as a wage earner. The husband then is dependent on the company to provide a job for him. And the company is dependent upon government and government regulations that allow them to have a profitable business. And then the government is circles back, is dependent upon everybody else to keep these circles these groups kind that's of right. keep going and they all understand that they're all together in this or that's something. right that's right the point is is that it creates vertical relationships 
you know, a Westerner comes here, we have lateral or horizontal relationships that are based on everyone's equal. We have competition. If you're good or if you, you know, work to be good at whatever you're doing, you can move up. And it's lateral. There's movement going from, you know, one level to another or what have you. Here in Japan, a lot of the time, it's all vertical, and the movement going up is usually based on age, nothing seniority. else. The older you get, seniority. So you get the, the senpai and the kohai relationship with superior the superior and the inferior. And subordinate. subordinate. Amai plays into this where everyone is dependent as you go up vertically. Yes. So There's no dog-eat-dog concept in Japan. The standalone Japanese is very difficult to find. I think those two books really zero in like no other books. So the first book is The Anatomy of Dependence by Takako Doi. Yeah. And the second one, Japanese Society. By Chie Nakane. Writing your book, you put footnotes on every page that has a unique Japanese word. So you don't have to flip all the way back to the glossary, even though you have one. It'll be very helpful for all readers that aren't knowledgeable for some of the terms, so they can read the term and then read the explanation right at the bottom. So did you purposely put lots of these cultural words into this book to highlight or teach Japanese culture while you were telling your own story? The purpose of the book was to give an account of Japanese culture to display to the reader and maybe to the reader that doesn't know much about Japan, about these cultural aspects through real-life stories that happened to me. I just happened to be the actor there. So like I said, I didn't come to Japan to think, oh, I'm going to be cultured or I'm going to get into the Japanese culture. It actually happened to me. I wasn't seeking to do these things. I just had experiences. So like learning the language, learning Koto, and then learning Shakuhachi, and studying uh, Buddhism. And it just started with the climb of Mount Fuji, which was not my doing either. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue, how things may or may not have changed. And it's also about a Japanese concept called omotenashi. You experienced Japanese omotenashi almost immediately once you arrived in Japan. Omotenashi being translated loosely as Japanese hospitality. 45 years later, Joe, has omotenashi changed or evolved in Japan? I think it's generational. What happened economically with the crash in 89, the stock market, the real estate market had crashed two or three years before that. And then the 90s came into a decade of recession. I, I think it goes down to that word, yoyu ga nai, yoyu ga aru. This is a concept, yoyu, which is, can't be translated into English. It's not affordability, but it has that. But not in a price-wise. Not in a price-wise. No. Like to have the capability to, to do something for people it's very I think, difficult. I think the word capacity. Yeah, capacity. We would say, capacity. I don't have the capacity to do that. Whether it's mentally, right. whether it's a time constraint, a financial constraint, you would say, yoyuga aru or yoyuganai. Yeah. So it goes back to Omotenashi we were talking about. They are extending themselves, through, whether it's through time, effort. It's a heart to heart type of feeling. 
But everybody that comes to Japan, look at TripAdvisor or talk to anybody yeah. that's been to Japan in the past five, six, seven, ten years. You don't have to go back 40 years or 30 years. Right. They all say that Japan, oh, the omotenashi here. I mean, they even used it for the Tokyo Olympics, right? Right, right. They use right. that as the catchphrase. But I just wonder how it might have been different in the late 70s compared to now. Let's just put it this way. If people come here now and feel that they're feeling omotenashi, which they probably are, let's say that 40 years ago it's omotenashi on steroids. We're here today at the Oak Door at the Hyatt. Where I usually record my podcasts here. If I order a beer, they have a chilled glass for me, and they have one in the freezer right now. You know, like the bar where everybody knows your name? That's omotenashi. It's like in Chapter 5 with Onesan when I start going to the French cafe coffee shop. Same thing. Every week I was there. And then they started giving me free stuff. That's an interesting story here about how you were, as in a typical American, you were tipping for their great service. And then they thought that they had to give you more to compensate for the tip. And it spirals a little bit out of control. But I'll let the readers explore that. Sure. How this book became quite genuine and authentic is I looked up Mike. I tracked down Mike. They met me and got me to climb Mount Fuji. And I actually gave him a call after the last time I had talked to him was in 1978. Really? And I called him up. When was this? This was uh, last year. I started writing about the climb, the Fuji climb. I tracked him down and called him. He says, oh my God. And we talked about it. And the last time I had contacted him was in 1980. I wrote him a letter in March. When I talked to him, he had pictures of the climb. He had pictures of the climb in 77, and he sent me all these pictures. So the, descri- the description of the climb is very, very, very accurate. Yeah. We exchanged notes, and I'd, I've talked to him a dozen times since. Yeah. Near the end of the book, when I was leaving Camp Zama, I had sent Mike this letter in March of 1980 and telling him exactly what was going on in my life, who was leaving, who had left, you know, my relationship with all the people, captain, all of this. I sent him a letter. He had kept it, and he sent it back to me. So the chronology and a lot of those details, that's why it's detailed. It just blew my mind. He kept it after 42 years. Amazing. Explore Japan in comfort and ease with Dream Drive. Rent a customized camper van to go camping, take nature hikes, relax at onsens, or just discover the many beautiful places less traveled around Japan. Dream Drive has various camper vans for solo travelers and families. Go to dreamdrive.life to plan your next Japan adventure. Enter the coupon code ZEN and receive a sweet discount when making your customized camper van reservation. Dream Drive, the hotel on wheels. In your book, great characters. One thing I most enjoyed about cultured gaijin was all these characters who entered your life. Your description and details of these people and your relationship with them was, for me, the highlight of the book. Junko and Mr. Yamaguchi, (laughs) Miki at the garden room. My favorite 
was the captain. Yes. <laughs> then, of course, there was Yoko and her mother. Yes. The one common thread through the whole book was the character of Yoko. Your Koto teacher, the love of your life for a majority of the book. The captain said something to you about Yoko when you revealed you were considering getting married to her. And the captain said, if you marry that girl, you would be ruining your life. Do you think he was right? Andrew, you know, hindsight is 2020. Look, writing a book changed my life a lot in the sense that, you know, I've told people before, if you're thinking about something that happened to you in the past, the thought may come in and goes out in seconds, maybe a minute. When you start to write about something that happened to you of significance and you have to dwell on it, you have to go back and relive it, and that's where the detail comes in. You really relive it. It's what it was for that time. Anyway, back to your question. Yes, please. I'm dying to I, know the okay. answer to this one. Okay. Did the captain have a big influence on me? Oh, of course he did. When you read about what happened, of course he did. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't use the word ruin, although he did. And maybe he, of course, he was 25 years older than me, looking at a young guy and saying, yeah, you know, he'd been through life and long enough to say, if you do that, chances are it's not going to be good for your future. Like we all do now as parents, you know, we look at our kids and say, but do they listen? Of course not. Yeah. So um, I don't know what would have happened, Andrew. I really don't. The other thing I really enjoyed about your book was when you wrote about all the places that you frequented. The cafes, the zakayas, jazz bars, even the restaurant and the bowling alley on the base the numerous hole-in-the-wall places. Again, incredible detail. I could imagine each and every one of them. Are any of these places still around? Did you ever go back after well, 45 years and, and check any of these places? Well, interestingly enough, I have already gone back to some of the places. For example, I went back to Jindaiji, where my first apartment was. It's no longer there. It was an old farm area. Even in those days, it's seven, you know, you're talking about 80, 1980. There was a big house there with my landlord, and she had this big rice paddy field. Then she had the apartments on the other side. Those are all gone. I ended up from there. I walked to Jindaiji, the, you know, the shrine there and everything. And I walked those grounds again. It's really, Brought back a lot of memories. Oh, you almost want to cry, you know, really. I'm planning to go back to the base, and I'm planning to go back to the cafe. The cafe is still there. The building is, but it's not a cafe. It's some kind of Japanese restaurant. There's a quote from your book. It made me chuckle. And I think it's really true about Japanese society when it comes to permission and individual expression. And here's the quote. It's on page 238. Getting my visa from Japanese immigration was my first experience to let me know nothing would come easy in Japan and a price always would be paid for the privilege of enjoying Japanese culture. What do you mean by that? 
I was so in love with this country and the culture that these things, I guess, just ran off my back. It was tough. I got treated terribly, but I didn't. I wanted to stay, and I just thought, I'm, I don't care. I wanted to, to stay here. I didn't know if they would let me, but I did. And then patience and tolerance and the, the, the whole concept of being able to gaman, you know, to tolerate and to go through things gracefully. Yeah. It taught me that. And I learned that also, you know, dealing with, you know, other people in the book. So there's a, there's a price to pay. That price, I've always thought, had been worth it. Yeah. Often yeah. foreigners do complain about the bureaucracy, why things take so long, why it's so complicated, why you get your form returned if you don't sign perfectly within the little square, all of these kind of anal retentive things, but you're saying that it never really bothered you. I guess I love the place enough to, I didn't care about it. You know, where, the, where there's a will, there's a way. You know, the, Japan is, is great in a sense that if you, if you just are a good person, you, you go by their rules, you accept their culture and how it is here, at least for me, it's always paid off. And I've always felt I got very well rewarded for that. Not that I was, that's what I, I just wanted to stay and live here, you know? That's a good point. If you follow the rules, endure, if you gaman some of the hurdles and the hoops that you have to go through, play by the rules, for the most part, life is quite smooth and enjoyable here. Yeah, that's been my experience. Anyway, it was a country for me. There's quite a twist at the end of your 300-page book. The book ends rather abruptly and leaves the reader longing for more. <laughs> Obviously, there's a second book in the works. Is the Cultured Gaijin going to become a series? Well, you know, when I first started writing, I had no idea that that would be a possibility, but now it is because I ended up including those first four years, and they, they were in detail enough, and the stories were long enough to create one book. So the next book, many of the stories that, I, that was on that YouTube thread can now be used in a second book, which is a continuation into the 1980s. Plus, there could be a book about the 1990s. There are more stories to be told. Uh, and of course, the 80s was something completely extraordinary. So Joe, your book is available on Amazon. It has great reviews, 4.8 out of 5. How's that make you feel? Yeah, it makes me feel great. Kind of the uh, vindication, I guess you'd say. Is that the right word? Yeah, sure. Yeah. What I did was worth reading for some people out there. Well, Joe, your book is many things. It's a memoir. It's a cultural reference dictionary. A bit of a travel log. But in the end, cultured gaijin is a love story. You hit it completely on the head. I had one review where a girl says, I'm not quite sure what this book is. She couldn't really describe it. And then she actually, she also said it, it's a love story, that it's a coming of age, which to me was completely out of what I had even thought about. It is. That's exactly right. It's about Japanese culture. I wanted to explain culture through my experiences intertwined with a love story that had a lot to do with learning the culture, accepting the culture because she was a cultured person. I got involved with traditional Japanese. Well, it's two love stories. 
It's a love story regarding a certain individual, but it's also a love story of you falling in love with Japan. Yeah, that's right. Parallel plot or storyline. A lot of people took you under their wing. Oh, they did. So how can I not fall in love with the place? Joe, we've talked a, a lot about these untranslatable Japanese words that litter your entire book, these culturally unique Japanese words. So I have to ask you, what's your favorite Japanese word that doesn't have an exact English translation? One you could say is onegaishimasu. I mean, onegaishimasu can mean so many things. That one has come up three or four times times already as people's favorite untranslatable word, onegaishimasu, which is usually translated as please. Please do this for me. or As you said, there's a hundred different uses for it. It could mean so many things. It's almost like a ceremonial word. Yeah. Just to... You know what it actually means? It's almost like, please do right by me. I mean, the crux of it, please do right by me. Yeah, that could be. Okay, Joe, let's wrap this up. I really enjoyed talking about your wonderful book, Cultured Gaijin. Other than Amazon, where else can people find your book and learn more about you and your book? Right now, I'm exclusively on Amazon. They come to my website. They will be directed over to Amazon. What's your website? Culturedgaijin.com. One word, culturedgaijin.com. And tell me about your website come to the website you're able to actually read excerpts of all the chapters you can also click directly to all the amazon site and that's how you can easily buy the ebook and then hopefully uh, leave a review for those who have uh, listened to the podcast and would like a free paperback version i'm willing to offer the first five listeners who send me drop me an email at culturedgaijin at gmail.com. Just mention that you've listened to me and Andrew sit down discussing the book. Wonderful. Joseph Del Mastro, thank you very much for your time today. The book is Cultured Gaijin, a Japan memoir of Bushido beginnings. Great book. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. It was great talking to you. And that was Joseph Del Mastro author of The Cultured Gaijin, a Japan memoir of Bushido beginnings. You can pick up a copy of his book on Amazon or through his website at culturedgaijin.com. If you would like to try and snag your own free copy of the book, send him an email at culturedgaijin at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Remember, there are more than 70 past episodes of Insightful Japan experts and insiders at nowandzen.jp. Feel free to check these out leave a message or a comment. All the best and catch you next time. Bye everyone.